Uh, we are looking at the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 41 through 48. Uh, your bulletin says through 51, but uh, through study this week and through uh, just preparation, um, decided to stop at 48. So grab a Bible. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, we have some in the back. Those are our gift to you. And turn to John chapter 6, verse 41. I'm going to read verses 41 through 48, and I'm going to pray for our time. And I would ask that you would pray for your heart and also pray for me. John chapter 6, verse 41 reads this. Would you hear the word of God? So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Let us pray. Father, before us uh, this morning, we have a passage of Scripture that is far beyond our comprehension alone. Father, we need your help. We need your work in and through us. Father, would we see the implications of this text? Would you help us to learn what it is to be in Christ, to look to him, to trust in him. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would grow us in the knowledge of your love for us displayed through Christ. And Lord, I ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. So there are many realities in life that human explanation and human reasoning just can't fully explain. Yet, even some of the greatest scientific conundrums are some of the most common experiences that we have every single day in our lives. Some of the most common activities that you and I deal with. For example, scientists don't fully understand why we need sleep. We know we need it, but they don't fully understand or are able to explain why we really needed. Take gravity as another example. We know it exists. We know we are bound by it. But no one can really explain exactly how gravity works. I mean, there are many more God-ordained realities that can be described as being beyond the bounds of human reasoning. In our text today, we see that the process of salvation is among those reality. Human reasoning will not suffice when it comes to the work of redemption. God must intervene. Chapter 6 has been a journey. Uh, we've gone from the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children 
uh, the great miracle that that was, uh, to then another miracle where Jesus walks on water, and, and then possibly a, a, a third miracle where uh, the writer John, the apostle, says that the boat was immediately brought to shore when Jesus walked in. Then we had the participants of the feeding of the 5,000. Some of them chase Jesus down. They get to the other side of the sea, and they question Jesus and ask him, how how in the world did you get here? We, We saw you over there. We knew that there were no more boats to bring you over here. So how in the world did you get here? Now, this prompts Jesus to begin teaching them. He goes on to, to teach, to, to preach basically a message to them, pointing to himself as the sufficient Savior, the bread of life, the eternal sustenance needed for their eternal security. And then last week we looked at verses 37 through 40 where Jesus tells his audience, the crowd that is gathered there, that Salvation is something that is planned and preserved through all eternity, and it is done by God. And today, as we look at verses 41 through 48, we see Jesus speak of the supernatural work that is needed in order for these people to actually grasp what he has just said. He said, in order for these things, the miracles, the teaching, in order for them to have salvific effects, something supernatural must happen. J.C. Ryle sums up this portion of Scripture well when he says this, the nature of man since the fall is so corrupt and depraved that even when Christ is made known and preached to him, He will not come to him and believe in him without the special grace of God inclining his will and giving him a disposition to come. He goes on and says, moral suasion and advice alone will not bring him. He must be drawn. There are three assertions I want to make this morning from this text that I pray will help us to grow in our understanding of God, understanding of salvation, and in turn, help us to grow in our love for him. Here they are. Number one, man's natural disposition is opposition to God. Man's natural disposition is opposition to God. Second, only God can change man's natural disposition. Only God can change man's disposition. And then third, when God changes man, it is immediate and it is eternal. When God truly changes man, It is immediate, and it is eternal. Let's look at the first here. Man's natural disposition is opposition to God. So look at verses 41 and 42 with me. So so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So these Jews, which often in John's writing represent uh, unbelievers or Jesus's enemies, those that are opposed to Jesus, are very upset at this point. They don't like the things that Jesus has said and is saying. John tells us that they are grumbling, 
which is similar to their forefathers who were grumbling in Exodus uh, chapter 16, right? When they're, they're taken out of uh, slavery to Pharaoh and they're in the wilderness and uh, they're grumbling, we are told, about the food and lack of. And they even say, hey, it would have been better for us to have stayed where we were. At least there we had food to eat. We could uh, do what we wanted. Now, we all know what grumbling is from personal experience. I mean, simply put, it's complaining. It's expressing dissatisfaction or displeasure in someone, something, or some circumstance we may find ourselves in. And here it also indicates unbelief. It's a sense of their unbelief in what is being expressed to them by Jesus Christ. See, this is the beginning of the growing hostility that will eventually erupt into hatred and anger towards our Savior. They, this hostility that continues to grow will eventually lead the people to what? To murder Jesus on a cross. Uh, we'll see this progression as we move through John's gospel. Uh, if you look down quickly in verse 52 that we will get to next week, Lord willing, we read that they disputed Jesus' claims. They, they started to dispute amongst themselves. This word dispute is a little uh, weightier than the word grumbled. So this shows us this kind of uh, progression of hostility that is growing. The more that Jesus says, the more that Jesus does, the more basically that he proves himself to be the son of God, God in flesh, the incarnate God-man, the more angry they become. And they're mad because they understand Jesus' words to say that he is on par with God. There's no misunderstanding here. Jesus is not mincing his words. He has clearly pointed out the fact that he himself is God. He's saying, I am God. Here I am. And it's not so much that he has said that he is bread. It's that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. That he was and is God. And their dissatisfaction with Jesus' claim is rooted in their knowledge of his earthly parents. They, they look here towards the physical and they, in essence, say, how in the world does this lowly, below-average carpenter's son, Joseph and Mary's boy, like, we know them. And this is Jesus. Like, how in the world would he be able to say that he is heavenly? I mean, there's pride just wrapped around their grumbling. He says, how in the world? Why in the world? How does this man, whose parents we know, dare to say this? There's nothing special about him. Now, we have no reason to believe that the incarnation was a known fact uh, in those times. We have no reason to think that they would have known anything about the incarnation. So to them, it was the fact that Mary and Joseph were his parents. And so no matter what Jesus is saying to them, they cannot get past the human reasoning. They're pointing to the physical. Christ's humanity was a major problem and still is a major problem for many today. Many cannot fathom a God who would come to the earth and live as a mere human and die a humiliating death on a cross. They, how could a, a God do such a thing? I mean, this group wanted a Messiah to take over then and there. If you remember, if you recall, uh, they wanted to make Jesus their king. They, they saw the, the provisions that he gave to them, 
and he, they, they, wanted, they said, hey, let's, let's make this man our king. And Jesus was not having any of it. Now, much could be said about the disrespect implied by their comment. But the most important thing I want us to take hold of is their natural disposition here. Their natural disposition is a physical opposition to God. There's nothing within them at this point that is inclined to believe what Jesus is saying. Here they are appealing to what they can see. Their argument is based on their ability to reason only from a human perspective. They have doubts because they only see the physical, which is a natural position of all mankind. They are reliant on human reasoning because human reasoning is all they can conjure up on their own. And listen, because of sin... All of humanity is born this way. We're born spiritually blind. Or, in other words, more specifically, we are born spiritually dead. Dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us this. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That would be those that are not saved. He said it's working now. And then he goes on in verse 3, says, among whom we all, speaking to everyone, including himself, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, nature, not something that we happen when, or it's not something that happened once we sinned. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, there are general implications of the sinfulness of all mankind here. We see a distinction between those who are saved and those who are not. And this means that humans cannot see, they cannot comprehend, and they cannot respond to God on their own volition. And it's important to clarify that man's inability to come to God is a moral inability, not a physical inability. It's a moral posture. Uh, One of the greatest theologians once said, he cannot come because he will not come, to put it simply. A good picture of this is in Genesis 37.4. When we're reading of Joseph and the hostility that's growing with him and his brothers. And in verse 4 of Genesis 37, we read that they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Now, clearly they could have spoken. But the problem is they would not speak because of their hostility, their anger, their hatred towards their brother. They didn't want to. They were stuck in a position of hatred. The grumbling Jews here represent this type of sticking. It really represents all of mankind. Naturally, naturally rebellious when they are told the truth about God. And even when there's evidence for God all around, they still stand in opposition. And just as it is impossible for a bowling ball to stop and change its course of direction on its own after being thrown down a lane, it is 
impossible for humanity to change our rebellious disposition towards God that is thrust from sin. We cannot do it on our own. We're incapable. We do not have that power within us. And this is exactly what Jesus communicates in verses 43 through 46. As he responds to this grumbling crowd, reminding them that only God can change man's disposition. Look at 43 through 46 with me. And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here Jesus is telling them to stop grumbling, or in other words, stop trying to figure things out on your own with human reasoning. Human reasoning will not suffice. You're pointing to things that are physical, and I'm speaking of something that is spiritual here. He says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. No one. In other words, something supernatural must happen. Something supernatural must take place for a person to to come. Or, in other words, to believe in Jesus Christ. If you recall in verse 37, we were told that the Father gave a people to the Son, right? We talked about that last Sunday as we looked at the doctrine of unconditional election. There was a people that were chosen before the foundations of the earth that Jesus Christ came to save. He secured them with his death and his burial and his resurrection. Now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, mediating on behalf of those that are his. And here we now learn how those that were given to Jesus in eternity past are actually enabled to come. The Father draws them. This is how this all works together. Now, there have been many debates throughout church history over what this drawing of the Father exactly is. And to understand the implications of Jesus' words here, we need to look at what the word draw actually means in its original writing. The word draw comes from a Greek word that means to be pulled in by force. Pulled in by force. The same word is used in John 21, 8, when used for dragging a a, a net full of fish. Talks about they, they, they drug the, they drag the load of fish up, the nets, they dragged them. They pulled them. In Acts 16, 19, it is used when Paul and Silas are, are dragged before the civil authorities. Again, it is used in John 18, 10, when Peter drew his sword. He drew his sword. And the point here is that every instance, there's an idea of resistance being overcome by a superior force. There's something superior that is happening to the natural resistance. So I would argue that it's pretty clear that Jesus is saying that there is nothing that the individual does to cause this coming. He essentially says, no one can come to me unless the Father pulls them by force. If we were to use the original writing. Now, for some, this may sound intrusive and aggressive. You may say, well, what about my free will? What about my will, my ability to choose God when I want? I mean, it doesn't sound very loving if God is just 
forcing people to come to Jesus. Wouldn't Jesus want people to just come to him on their own? I mean, isn't that more of an act of love for the person to Jesus Christ? The problem with that type of thinking is that it completely ignores the biblical truth that nobody has free will. Absolutely no one is fully autonomous in this world. While it is true that men and women make genuine choices on their own, there is no fully autonomous human in this created world. Let me show you why. The Bible speaks of two categories of individuals, those who are slaves to sin and those who are slaves to righteousness. There is no middle ground. You're either one or the other. Romans 6, 17 through 18. Turn there with me if you have your Bible handy. Romans 6, 17 through 18. I want you to see this for yourself. Paul, writing to the Romans, says this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become, now what? Slaves of righteousness. There's two categories here. You are either a slave of sin or you are a slave of righteousness. Martin Luther once said, free will after the fall exists in name only. For the will is captive and subject to sin. We've been tainted. Our, our free will has been tainted by sin. And God, in his mercy and his kindness towards undeserving humanity, drags rebellious sinners away from their captivity to sin and makes them now slaves to righteousness. Unites them to Jesus. Seals them with the Holy Spirit to ensure their safe passage home. And how does he do this? Does God aggressively drag an individual kicking and screaming against their own will as if somehow they have broken a law and now are being dragged to the courthouse to be sentenced? Absolutely not. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So listen, the drawing that is done by God's teaching and grabbing their hearts, they are taught and they are brought. Jesus says that those who hear, those that learn from the Father, come to him. See, Jesus pointed it all back to the Father's work, the sovereign hand of the Father in salvation. He says you must hear and learn from the Father. Now, there's a theological term that helps us to understand this even better. It's called the effectual call. The effectual call. Question 34 in the Baptist Catechism defines effectual call like this. It says, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He doth not persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. See, the Bible teaches 
that God draws individuals by graciously changing their hearts and freeing them from the bondage to sin. In Acts 16, 14, Luke describes the conversion of Lydia by saying, the Lord opened her heart. In Jeremiah 32, 38 through 39, which we just read, when speaking of the promise to come, the new covenant, Jeremiah says, and they shall be my people, speaking of God, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart. They will have one heart. There's something that will be changed here. That way they may fear me forever for their good and the good of the children after them. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, he prophesied in 36, 26. says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it within you. He says, I will remove the heart of stone, slave to sin, hostility, and I will give you a heart of flesh. In the epistles, we read over and over about the work of God in the lives of Christians. I mean, the writers there speaking to Christians, to the church, they say, hey, you were once this, but God. You were once slaves to sin. You were doing all of these things, these sinful acts, but God intervened and he has made you a new creature, new creation in Christ Jesus. He says it's God that does this work. I mean, even the word church comes from a word that means the called out ones. Ecclesia, the called out out ones. Those that have been called from what? From a life of sin. To what? A life in Christ. God calls out a people from the world's systems of sin and says, I am going to change them and I'm going to make them my people. Brothers and sisters, it is all about the heart. See, God changes men and women's desires. It's not a dragging to change them against something they don't want to have done. It's a change of desire. Those things that were once beautiful are now disgusting. Those things that were once disgusting are now beautiful. We turn from sinners to saints, lovers of self to lovers of God, the wicked become holy. And it's a work of God that does this. Things that people once reject, Christ, it's been offered to them, rejected for years, all of a sudden, in an instant, become irresistible, glorious. Like there's, there's nothing else I'd rather have than this Savior. That is a work of God. And there's nothing that we can do to manipulate it. God is the one who creates the change. And he does this by drawing them to himself. Now it's important to mention here that outside of the effectual call that we just talked about, there's a general call of the gospel. There's a general call that we are called and commanded to do as Christians. And this is the proclamation of the gospel to all people. And Christians are indeed commanded to proclaim this gospel to all people without reservation. Listen, we must never pretend to know who is and is not elect who is or is not called, who is or is not able to be saved according to Scripture. That is not our job. Instead, we must present the gospel at every opportunity, no matter the scope of the audience, and trust God to draw those whom he has chosen for his purposes and his glory. That's what we're called to do. Preach the gospel. Show 
share, live in ways that would model Christ's likeness. Teach people that they cannot obtain salvation through good works. Proclaim the truth that you must repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if you are to be saved. We preach this truth. We proclaim it. One of my favorite illustrations for this is thinking of maybe a crowd of children or think of a big crowd and maybe a father has lost some of his children in this crowd. And maybe he calls out to the crowd and and he yells for his children, hey, come, there's a general call. He can't make his way in there, so he's, he's calling for his kids. Maybe some of the kids in there even have the same name. And he's calling Billy, Sarah, whoever they may be. His children will come out of the crowd. There's a call that is effectual for them and them alone. They hear their father's voice. But the call is general. The call is very general. And we should proclaim it with all of our ability. Jesus Christ says, no one can come to me unless this happens. In verse 46, Jesus reminds them that he is the only one that has seen the Father. So a rejection of this truth, a rejection of what he is saying here is a rejection of the Father himself. This also reiterates the fact that the effectual call is an internal work that cannot be seen. Jesus points back, he says, hey, I'm the only one that's seen the Father. I'm the only one that truly understands exactly how this works. He says it can't be figured out by human reasoning. It cannot be understood by human understanding. It is something that cannot be seen. It is God and God alone who changes man's disposition. It pulls them from slavery to sin to a life of righteousness. And once that disposition is changed, man is then given the ability to believe And it is here where the beauty of human responsibility and God's sovereign hand in salvation meet in perfect harmony. We are able then to respond, believe in the gospel. And here we find out in our third assertion here, in verses 47 through 48, we see that when God changes man, It is immediate and it is eternal. It is immediate and eternal. 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, we won't spend uh, as much time here as we did the first two points because This is a reminder of what has been already preached and proclaimed throughout chapter 6. But I want us to look here at the results that Jesus describes here in these verses. So he said, these are the things that must happen. Here are the results. The sequential action after being drawn in verse 44 is that someone does what? They believe. They're drawn And then they believe in Jesus Christ. This is the human responsibility. Remember what Jesus said earlier. He said, uh, when the people asked him, like, what work do I have to do? He said, believe. Believe in me. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Believe in Jesus Christ. And he says here that in context... 
the human responsibility that we have should strip away all human pride, all human reliance. Anything that would say like, I believed because I'm smarter than whoever should be just totally eradicated from those that are speaking and thinking truly of Scripture. Listen, brothers and sisters, left to human reasoning, left to our own devices, you and I will never believe in Jesus Christ. We can't do it. We will not do this on our own. Once again, sin has affected each and every person. We do not believe by ourselves. One does not believe because they're smarter than others or they've figured it out. One does not believe because they are somehow more um, gifted in some way than others. We believe because God the Father draws us, changes us, gives us the effectual call of the gospel, and we respond. And he says there is immediate and eternal effects from this belief. He says whoever believes has eternal life. Has. Now, that is the present tense there. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the moment of conversion, you are set apart for God's good pleasure? There's positional sanctification, justification that happens upon your conversion. Romans 8, 29 through 30. We looked at this uh, last week, but I think it's important to just be reminded of this again. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then he goes on in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. This is what's happening we just described. We talked about here. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is how salvation works. This is Paul's uh, theological understanding and a proclamation of this is the order of salvation. You're predestined, you're then called, you're justified, and you're glorified. Now justified is a legal term that means a legal declaration, or in other words, not guilty in front of God. It would mean right standing in front of your creator. This is something that has to happen to you. We cannot justify ourselves to the creator. It's a very simple concept to understand, but one that is hard to truly comprehend in terms of understanding the realities of our salvation. Glorified here is an eternal promise that Christians will receive resurrected bodies upon the last days. So we will be raised. Our bodies will be glorified, perfected. There is something to come for all who have this faith. And this is a promise to all who are called. As Paul tells the Philippian Christians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the last day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, this is the promise to all who are in Christ. This is the promise to all who have been called and who have believed by faith in Jesus Christ. We have eternal security. Listen, the gospel is the great news that Jesus Christ died on a cross to set you free from your sins and make you right with God. And if you are in this moment being called, being stirred, the Spirit is speaking to you. And the Bible tells us that we confess our sins 
we repent, turn away from them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is according to God's word, that he came to earth, the God-man, incarnation happened, that he then lived a perfect life, but he died a sinner's death in your place, the death that you and I deserve. But he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he will return again one day to restore, renew, replenish all that's been broken. It's the promise of those that are his. If you believe by faith that these things are true, you you don't have to have it all figured out. We've used some big theological terms the last couple of weeks, and, and, and that's okay. The simplicity of the gospel is you repent and believe. You trust. You turn and pursue Jesus Christ with all that you have. And you give up all the things that hinder you. Let me give us just a quick closing application. Outside of that, even just for those that are believers in Jesus Christ. Number one, just we are dependent on God. Amen. We are dependent on God. And so for those that have family and friends and children, right, that you're just, you're, you're wrestling with their salvation. You're, you're wrestling with the implications of, of this. I just want to give you three just quick things to, to help you as you wrestle with the people in your own lives. And I, I get emotional because I, I know some of you that are wrestling with this right now. So I just want to give you three quick just encouragements and uh, just exhortations. And I try to make them real easy, and they're all, they're all P words. So the first is pray. You pray. Wear out those knees. Pray. Pray for those in your life that are that are perishing, pray for them. Pray hard. Pray earnestly. Pray eagerly. Pray prayers that are beyond you. Pray for them. Plead with God for those that aren't saved that you know. Ask him to intervene. Ask him to save. Do the work that only he can do. Second, proclaim. Proclaim the truth of Scripture. Do not be afraid to stand on God's word. Do not be afraid to speak the truth of God's word in the face of opposition. Speak the truth in love. Speak boldly, courageously, but with humility knowing that there's nothing that you did to get yourself here. It was God's work, and it must continue to be God's work. In order to proclaim, we must know it. So this means we must be in our word. We must seek to understand God's word. We must seek to understand and to search the scriptures. It probably means less time in front of a screen and more time in front of some pages. Some black and white, reading God's word, reading good books that help us to comprehend the complexities of salvation. Third, I would encourage you to provide, provide. And what I mean here is provide gospel-saturated moments. Provide moments in your home, in places you've been invited to, use every opportunity you have to provide gospel conversations. Uh, Families, that means family worship. We must do this in our home. 
Fathers, you must lead your family in family worship. There's no excuse. Make time. We need to be people that proclaim and provide opportunities for our children to hear the truths of Scripture, to ask hard questions, to see us pray, to see our own dependence on our Father. We must provide. Uh, being in Bible-preaching churches, you know, college students, some of you are here for a while and uh, you will be gone in a year or a few years. Listen, it is important that you ensure that you stay in a Bible-preaching church, not a church full of entertainment. You must get this week in, week out. Be church. Have your gathering be the reason why you miss other things. The gathering of the saints. There's something special that happens in this gathering. It does not happen anywhere else. So provide gospel Saturated environments for your family, friends, invite family, friends over that are unbelievers. Be hospitable. It's a very simple Christian practice that many people forget. Show them, tell them Jesus Christ is your king. See, human reasoning will never suffice. We need God to intervene. We need God to regenerate dead men. And the effectual call is our greatest ally when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, may we seek to understand and may we seek to proclaim the truths of Scripture as we press on as ambassadors for our King in this lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness that you would send your son to die on our behalf and that then you, you don't leave it up to us to just make a decision that we would never make on our own but you draw us, you call us to yourself by the work of your spirit changing us. And I pray, Father, that if in this moment there's anyone that's gathered in this space that do not know you as their Savior, as their Lord, that do not follow you as their King, pray, Father, that you would work you would draw them to yourself, that they would repent and believe in the gospel. Would you help us as Christians living here in Lynchburg, Virginia, would you help us to be ambassadors, proclaimers, prayerful, and being those that provide opportunities for unbelievers to engage. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.